From Creative Force, I'm Daniel Jester, and this is the e-commerce content creation podcast. Last week, we did a flashback re-release of episode four featuring Tony Baker. That was for good reason, because Tony has been on my mind a lot recently. As I've been preparing for the product photography class I'll be teaching at Art Center College of Design this semester, I've been thinking a lot about the nature of product photography as a discipline within photography at large. What informs the way a product photographer specifically approaches their subject? I've been thinking about its value in creating skilled tradespeople, because that's what we product photographers are. Good product photography is the direct result of countless hours of photographing products, developing skills that we can bring to bear on any future assignment. I thought back to my conversation with Tony and this particular quote. And again, simple, done well, is absolutely the hardest thing to do because there's nothing to hide behind. It either works really well or it falls apart. There's rarely anything in between. So in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about that concept, doing the simple thing extraordinarily well. An important part of creating my lesson plan for this upcoming semester has been to identify where the students in my class will fall in terms of experience. What other classes are they taking? What else are they learning about photography? This would allow me to focus on what differentiates product photography as a niche. And I've had to spend a lot of time thinking about what differentiates product photography as a niche and what are the sort of driving factors that you experience, especially in e-commerce product photography. A big thing I expect to have to deal with in this class is defining the different types of product photography, because I think a lot of people, a lot of young photographers, especially they see product photography as a niche that interests them. But what they're really hyper-focused on is like high-level advertising and campaign photography without really thinking about all of the other types of product photography that they may be able to find roles in and sort of work their way through to gain a lot of valuable experience. So what are the things that differentiate product photography as a niche? And I think one of the big ones, especially in e-commerce, is that it's never about a singular shot. Each image is created within the context of all of the other images, and not just the art direction, but as a cohesive set of images that inform the customer. And this impacts all facets of photography, of the photographic process, camera type, focal length, aperture settings, lighting design, post-processing, color management. All of those things are impacted. You aren't making those decisions much of the time for yourself as you are crafting an image to the best of your ability within those sort of strict guidelines. And when you layer all of this over the fact that at its most basic products are photographed on a neutral, if not a white background, you really don't leave any room for error. And this is what Tony was talking about in our episode together about supporting those creative teams is I certainly came up as a product photographer feeling sort of less than other types of photography because we're just shooting handbags, hats, shoes. I mean, you name it. I've shot almost everything possible to shoot. All of those things, shooting them on white is, I think for lack of a better way to describe it, the least sexy or considered the least sexy version of product photography. But if you really think about it, those are the opportunities to be able to focus singularly 
on that product. And even taking into account or taking out of the equation that you need to define a lot of cases, you need to define lighting and different things for yourself. Your job then becomes really clear. How do I make this thing look as good as it possibly can look? Give the customer the best possible information that they need so that they can choose to buy that thing without ever having actually seen it in person and do all of that with very little room for error because there's nothing else in the image to distract you from that thing. You can get away with a lot shooting a product in context in the environment, imperfect reflections, all kinds of things you can get away with when you're shooting that product on white. In an ideal world, and if you're at the top of your game as a product photographer, there's no room for error. I think it's worth mentioning that this is something that has taken me a long time to develop, or I guess to get over that sense of being sort of less than in a lot of ways because of how many years I've spent my career shooting mostly product on white before moving into managing photography teams and stepping away from set a little bit is that I struggled with my own identity as a photographer as a result of that. And it really was through conversations with people like Tony and through sort of reflecting on my own work and what that exercise has allowed me to do in terms of the photography that I've pursued for my own personal gratification is that it's easy to take it for granted as a job sometimes. And certainly there were days that I did that. I want to be really clear it was never lost on me that I got to spend my day in a studio taking pictures with people that I enjoyed working with most of the time. And that was, that's been a, a really gratifying part of my, my own work history. But I would be lying if I said that in the moment that I really truly understood that I was gaining a lot of valuable skill as a photographer and building my craft, so to speak, and able to bring those things to bear. And it's only through reflection and especially through doing this podcast and being able to talk to people like Tony Baker about this, that I really truly uncovered the value of that level of work. And so I think like at its core, if you really want to distill it down, and if I want to go into my semester as associate professor of product photography at, at Art Center, at its core, product photography is about the pursuit of excellence in the craft of photography to a level of such detail that isn't always present with other types of photography. I need to leverage my skill, expertise, and experience. I have to call on every little trick I've ever learned to make this thing, whatever it may be, look good. And again, ideally to inspire somebody to spend their money on it without ever seeing it in person. I want to talk about one of my, probably my main sort of hero in terms of the masters of photography. And I'm sure that I've mentioned it on this podcast before, but that's Irving Penn. And the moment when I discovered that Irving Penn was the photographer, the photography master whose work most spoke to me. It was later on in my career. I had been working in e-commerce studios and I had been shooting and as always really grappling and struggling with my own identity as a photographer. And in fact, I think it's worth mentioning that I struggled with even the idea of calling myself a photographer, which it seems absurd because I felt like product photography was so beneath this probably romanticized idea of what I understood photography to be. After I had been working some time as a photographer, I decided that I wanted to take some photography classes, in part because I was still very interested in shooting with film, but needed access to a darkroom to be able to really take full advantage of, of shooting in that medium. And the professor that was teaching this class 
this photography class shared some, we were talking about still life and we were talking about the challenges around still life photography versus other types of photography, which I think should be pretty apparent to most people. Images with people have a tendency to be much more engaging. There are much fewer, I think, famous still life images that really evoke a reaction in the way that most portraiture can certainly evoke, but they do exist. And one of those images was Irving Penn's after dinner games, which I remember vividly the moment that I had seen it for the first time. And it changed the entire way that I felt about what still life photography could be and what even product photography can be. Although in that situation, you're less able to choose the elements that make up your still life. But even still, this idea that there was this group of objects, disparate objects in some ways, that tell you this story without a person even being present. And what were those things sitting on? Was it a table? Was it on some kind of a sweep? It had some kind of light sort of texture to it. And when you get into it, it's sort of the the absolute example of Irving Penn's work, who is known for working in a very simplistic style and very simplistic backgrounds. Irving Penn is an undisputed master of photography who spent a lot of his career as art director for Vogue and shooting some of the most recognizable elements of fashion photography in the history of high fashion photography. But he also could shoot objects in a way that evoked emotions that were sometimes strange. Some of Irving Penn's most famous photographs are of partially smoked, partially consumed cigarettes. And they're so evocative and they're so emotional and they tell you so much about what that photographer was trying to say with very little individual elements in the image itself. Just the cigarette on a nondescript background with a very, very simple lighting setup. Irving Penn did this arguably better than anybody had done it. And I don't think, again, there's nobody that disputes that he's one of the masters of photography, despite the fact that many of his most famous works are on a pure white background or a very light colored background. To bring this back full circle to our theme for this episode about the idea of doing something simple and doing it extraordinarily well. I think Irving Penn's work stands as a testament to the adage that simplicity is the ultimate in sophistication. Irving Penn's iconic imagery is characterized by that fact that he uses such stark minimalism. In many of his, again, many of his high fashion photographs are on a pure white background, and that's part of the story that he's telling you. And it demonstrates the profound impact of stripping away those extra elements to focus on the core essence of the subject, whether that subject is a person, whether that subject is a partially consumed cigarette, regardless of what that subject is. Irving Penn's intentional simplicity allowed him to transcend the superficial and dive deep into the soul of that subject, creating timeless images that with their straightforwardness reveal so many layers of complexity and even emotion. Through his ability to distill compositions down to their essential elements, a significant part of what makes Irving Penn one of my heroes in photography, and probably my biggest hero in photography, is that his entire body of work showcases the incredible power of simplicity in visual storytelling. It makes his work an enduring source of inspiration for the world of product photography for me, despite the fact that what we do today looks quite a bit different 
than the way that he was doing it for Vogue in the 1950s and beyond. A last thought on Irving Penn before we move on to some other things before we wrap up this episode. He has a handful of quotes out there, and he's thought a lot. This is somebody who thought a lot about his craft of photography and, and what it has meant to him and what it has allowed him to do. And one of the quotes of his that I think about all of the time in my own, as I pursue my own work in my own studio, and he said this, I wish I could give you more information about when and where he said it, but it's actually pretty hard to find some of this information for him sometimes. But I have it on good authority. This is attributed to Irving Penn. I can get obsessed by anything if I look at it long enough. That's the curse of being a photographer. And that is certainly how I felt. And I think many product photographers, especially still life product photographers like myself, feel about things. You can sit there and you can look at spark plugs long enough that they start to look interesting. And you might even obsess over how best to make them look amazing. So this is a lot of the things that I've been thinking about as I've been preparing my lesson plan and thinking about what I can do for the students that take my product photography course at Art Center and trying to think about what I want them to walk away with, which is a couple of things. I know I've been talking about this in a very high-minded and sort of artistic way, but one of the things I really want them to take away from it is that there is a lot of value in product photography, regardless of the type of product photography that you're doing. Everyone is going to strive towards doing the things that really truly interest them, that excite them, that gain them recognition. But the reality is that many photographers that go through the program at Art Center and other schools will work in e-com studios, will shoot product on white for some amount of time as they decide where they want to go and where they want, how they want their career to grow. And I want the students that come through my class to have a good sense of the value that this work can bring to them, that they need to think maybe less about whether or not they're making the sort of creative decisions that they really feel like they want to be making and use that time as we talked about in the episode with Tony Baker back in episode four, use that time to really understand what you're able to learn how to do and how you're able to build your skill and how you're able to develop your craft as a photographer. I want them to be able to take that away from that and also a healthy sense of reality of what the industry looks like. And that's kind of what I want to talk about for the last few minutes of this episode. I just want to pivot and talk a little bit about the state of the industry today. It's been a really strange year. We kicked off the year at the beginning with a lot of uh, hype around AI tools and things that are going to be coming. A lot of that hype has since died away and we have come to grips with what has been a pretty agonizingly slow uh, and unsure summer for a lot of creative teams and a lot of studios within and around our industry. My good friend and colleague at Creative Force, Caitlin Andrews, hosted an episode of this podcast with Perry Shad, where they talked about some of these things. They talked about some of the challenges and things that fed into what ultimately was an extremely slow summer. The type of environment that I think we expected to come earlier between COVID and then sort of the rocky economic footing around there. Again, I'm not an economist. There are much smarter people, but it feels like maybe some of the decisions that at least in the U.S. that we have made to stabilize the economy a bit have sort of worked, but I don't think that that has trickled down necessarily to budgets and certainly not creative teams budgets. So as budgets have been getting finalized through the summer for the following year, you know, we'll see what happens with that. We'll see what type of investments are ready and willing to be made. But I do want to talk about just for a few minutes, some trends that I've been thinking about. And there's some evidence that I think that there's going to, we're going to see some shifts, I think, 
as you think about the challenges, the persistent challenges around running an in-house studio, I think it stands to reason. And I've talked a little bit about this with some folks uh, at the Seattle event that we did back in July that I, I think it stands to reason that we could see a subtle shift in the way that that some companies are handling their creative. There had been sort of a move away from, and it wasn't true across the board, but in some areas we'd seen a move away from working with studios to building in-house programs where you have a lot of control over a lot of bits of the process that you don't have necessarily with working with external studios. But I think that there's enough evidence and anecdotes out there that we could see that kind of come back a little bit. We've, I've heard from a lot of uh, my friends that work at commercial studios all around the country here in the U S I'm less, I think in touch with how things are looking in Europe and other parts of the world, but here in the U S a lot of those studios are doing really well and they're seeing sort of an uptick in customers that are coming in and they're seeing a lot of growth. And it stands to reason that a lot of people who built in-house programs maybe over the course of COVID or really expanded on that are realizing that it might be a little bit unsustainable for them and that they could move back to using a service provider studio, which I think now where we are today with a lot of the tools that are on the market, the technological tools that are on the market, it really changes the dynamic of that sort of relationship. One of the things that I've thought a lot about is what does it look like for a company like mine, like Creative Force, to have a customer of ours who maybe doesn't actually have an in-house studio, but uses their Creative Force platform, uses their account on the Creative Force platform to manage their partner studios. So if you think about like a big e-commerce retailer who is big enough that maybe they need to partner with different photography studios to support their product photography pipeline. They own the creative force account. They build all of the style guides and they have all of the insights into where everything is in real time, just like an in-house team does. But instead they're sending those samples to those studios and those studios are using Kelvin and creative force and feeding those images back into that main account. So if you're that big e-commerce retailer, you control the style guide. You can see very clearly what images are being done, and you actually have access to them the minute that those images are uploaded into Kelvin, can feed them into your post-production things. It's a really, really interesting time to think about the way that relationship has changed now that the technological tools that are on the market that are available to you have matured and changed so dramatically even since 2020. Just thinking about, you know, I can only really speak for creative force on this, but thinking about how much creative force has changed since 2020 and where we're at today now at the, you know, going into the last quarter on our way to the last quarter of 2023, which by the way, it's a good time to mention uh, that we have some very exciting features that are going to be released on the creative force platform through the end of the year. And right now today you can sign up for our webinar, which is going to be at the end of this month late September on our planning and resources module that we're going to be releasing. This is a feature that has been a long time coming and we're really, really excited to roll this out to uh, beyond the, the handful of creative force customers that have been able to play with it, test it and, and use it here and there, but it is going to, I think be a really fantastic tool for a lot of teams who are currently using Creative Force and maybe even the thing that we needed in order to get you across the finish line if you were thinking about Creative Force but was missing some of the elements that you felt like you really needed. 
Um, some of the things, and I, I don't have a lot of firsthand experience with the planning and resources module as of the time that I record this. I'm certainly going to spend a lot of time with it over the next couple of weeks. But being able to see a workload and assign it to a team and do all of that as intelligently as possible based off of the data around how teams are performing potentially and the types of products that they might be getting. I'm really, really, really excited at the level of control and power that creative creative team managers are going to be able to leverage with this tool. And again, all in the service of making sure that their teams are set up to produce as good of work as possible. I think going back to the first part of this podcast episode where I was you know, sort of soapboxing about product photography, <laughs> philosophizing, I guess, I don't know if that's a word, about product photography. You know, a huge thing that we've talked about for many, many years in this industry is how our teams, our creative teams get so bogged down. It can really, really feel awful to have to shoot that spark plug if you're also thinking about all of the various other bits of technology that you need to try to manage and the systems that are disjointed and disconnected and create a lot of opportunities for error, it's no wonder that it sometimes is hard to really take that sort of philosophical approach to the work that you're doing. But we at Creative Force have always strived to ease that burden on creative teams, not only set level teams, but middle, middle management teams as well, to try to help people focus their mind on really creating the best possible imagery for their customers. So uh, I'm really excited about that. I hope that you will sign up for that upcoming webinar later in the year. We are expecting to do another webinar on some other modules and features that we will be releasing, some other big, pretty, pretty big releases. But again, now's a great time as budgets are getting discussed. Now is a great time to really take a hard look at the technology that's out there. Take a hard look at how your internal teams are structured and really, really think about how you're going to set up your team for success in the face of future business disruption. Many of us were saying this, and I think about, like, I've, I've had many conversations with Claire Carter again about this and a lot of guests on this podcast that, and I think we've seen it come to fruition since COVID, there has been no shortage of major events around the world that have represented a massive business disruption to businesses as a whole, especially though impacting creative teams who are looking for samples and looking to get images online and needing to be able to do these things. COVID, the specter of COVID is still looming out there with people potentially getting sick. You know, we'll see what this respiratory illness season brings us, but also, you know, shipping, worldwide shipping, climate change related events that are causing flooding in areas, the ongoing Ukraine war. It's an interesting time to think about how we buffer against those things and build a team that can produce what we need to produce, that can pivot, that can be lean and agile, all of the buzzwords that we've been talking about for years on this podcast, how we can really build ourselves a, a system and leverage the technology, the now very mature and very capable technology that's out there to build a process that works really, really well. So that's it for this episode of the podcast. I'm sorry to have not had a guest this week. I'm sorry if you got tired of listening to me for the past 25 minutes or so, but we will hopefully have a guest for you next week as I get kind of rolling again after my vacation. I just want to say a quick shout out to Caitlin Andrews for her incredible work uh, on the podcast while I was out. I certainly think that while I'm now that I'm back from vacation and 
hitting the ground running. I do not think that that will be the last that you hear of Caitlin. I think she made a phenomenal host and I love that her perspective that she brought to the show. And I really hope that you enjoyed it too, because I, I certainly enjoyed listening to those episodes and would really enjoy listening to more episodes with Caitlin in the future. That's it for this episode of the e-commerce content creation podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The show is produced by Creative Force, edited by Calvin Lands. Special thanks to Sean O'Meara. I'm your host, Daniel Jester. Until next time, my friends. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian.